Our scripture reading this morning is from Genesis 3, 8 through 13. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I said, which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are grateful this morning to be able to sing these truths, to sing about your holiness. And as we even see from our text, your holiness is to be feared by those who are sinful. But Father, it's through the grace of Christ that we are able to sing about your holiness without fear of retribution and condemnation because that condemnation has been borne by Jesus so that we who put our faith in him would not have to bear it. So Father, we pray that as we explore this text this morning, that we would understand it for its original intentional meaning and that we would seek to apply it to our lives by your spirit. Father, we want to pray for many things. We want to pray for our local association of other Baptist churches. We pray uh, that as we cooperate with them that we would be able to share in what Jesus has called us to, to go and make disciples. So we pray for a faithful teaching of your word in the other churches that we cooperate with and fellowship with. We thank you for the men's camp out this weekend. We thank you for the clear teaching of your word, the testimony of your faithfulness to save sinners such as us. And so we pray that our men would be um, fighters of sin, they would be lovers of righteousness, and that they would care for their domains well. We thank you for faithful wives and moms who enabled us to be able to spend hours away with one another, sharpening one another. So we pray that you would encourage moms this weekend um, and wives who uh, take care of us so well. We're thankful for new deacons. We're thankful for an abundance of men in our church who we can recognize fruits of righteousness in and their faithful service. And we thank you that these men are are not going to be starting a new job, but they are continuing what they've already been doing uh, just now with the recognition of the church. We're thankful for them. And Father, this morning as we discuss a heavy text, I pray for those who are in the midst of fighting sin, and I pray that you would encourage them, that they would be encouraged to fight sin well, and that they would see victory in their lives over the sin that would call us. Father, be with me as I seek to expound on your text, on your word this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are not already there, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. And I wonder if you've ever taken a bite of something and it wasn't what you were expecting. There was an occasion where A family friend of ours invited us over. Mr. Cannon was his name. He was a family friend. He was my teacher. He was also my boss. So we had a good relationship with him. And he was also known as a good cook. Cooked good steaks, made mashed potatoes for us that evening, and also had homemade butter pecan ice cream. If you ask my wife or anybody else that knows me well, ice cream is my thing. If I had to forego all other sweets for the sake of ice cream, I would happily do it. Well, this evening I was filled with steak and potatoes and then I was handed a bowl filled with ice cream drizzled healthily in chocolate syrup. And I take a bite 
And unfortunately, the snickering of Mr. Cannon and my father did not tip me off to the fact that it wasn't ice cream in my bowl, it was chocolate-covered mashed potatoes. And it was all I could do to keep my dinner down because it wasn't what I was expecting. The mashed potatoes earlier had tasted really good, but now that I was expecting ice cream, they tasted much different. So read with me our text starting in verse 8 this morning. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. In our text this morning, we see more of the reaction of the man and the woman to the bite they have just taken. The sweetness of the fruit is followed by a bitter aftertaste, and they begin to feel the effects of the poison almost immediately. They recognize their nakedness, and they scramble, filled with shame, to sow fig leaves for themselves. And then it gets worse. They hear God, and knowing that their loincloths are not effective to shield them from him, they hide. And I think reading this text, you and I might be tempted to roll our eyes at these two. How could they be so obtuse as to think they could hide from God? Don't they realize who they're dealing with? Yet this, what we see in this text is the aftertaste of sin because this is what sin does. Sin makes us fools. Sin makes us believe things and it makes us believe things as we see in this text in particular. One It makes us believe that hiding from God is better than running to him. It's exactly what Adam and Eve do. Realization dawns on them that God is coming, and now there is this inner voice within them that hisses for them to run. They recognize that the leaves don't cover them up. Adam testifies to as much. Why did you hide? Adam saying, covered with a loincloth, says, I was naked. Adam is speaking truthfully here, whether he realizes or not. He could have fashioned a three-piece suit out of those fig leaves, and his response would have been the same. I was naked. I was bare before the eyes of God. Yet even though he was covered, he still felt like hiding was his best recourse, as though he could tuck himself under more leaves. And don't you and I do the same? Don't we find ways to suppress the effects of our sin, to cover up its aftertaste, to hide from God as though we can stave off the effects of our sin? Now granted, you and I, we're much more clever and intelligent than Adam. We have refined ways of hiding. We're fools because we believe our transgressions are not that bad. That's one of our ways of hiding. We convince ourselves that our sin really isn't that terrible. It was one fruit. It was a small bite, we say. And sometimes we go as far as to call sin by other names, framing it in such a way that it no longer implies guilt. I didn't get angry with my wife. I was frustrated. I'm not selfish. I just need some self-care. It's not gluttony. It's Thanksgiving. I'm not worrying. I'm just concerned. It's not resentment. It's self-defense. I'm not contentious. I'm defending truth. I don't love money. I'm just frugal. It was a mistake, a lapse in judgment, a slip-up. I was thoughtless, preoccupied, and distracted. 
And when we use language like this, we go into a mindset that diminishes the grievousness of our sin. We don't like the bitter aftertaste of our sin, so we try to take the edge off. We try to soften it. It's like putting sweet and low in your coffee. It might taste a little better, but the aspartame might give you cancer. That's what I've heard. In our culture, we go further. We don't just call sin by other names. We have removed the weight of sin altogether. We have taken what God hates and we have made it acceptable. We've made it palatable. Jerry Bridges calls these respectable sins. We've talked about this recently with our students. Today, in our culture, it is completely acceptable to be anxious. Go online, you'll find vlogs, hashtags, posts on people's talking about their anxiety and wearing it like a badge of honor. Anxiety is seen as something that happens to us. It's a result of our circumstances and not a sickness of the heart brought on by sin. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not lacking in compassion towards those who are anxious. Our Lord delights in comforting the anxious at heart. But what our world teaches and what we believe is that anxiety, it is something to cope with and not something to put to death. We're foolish because we think our sin is not that bad. We're also fools to believe that we are better than we actually are. We look at our good deeds in a way in which our shame can be covered. In our hearts, we place our lives on a scale, our good deeds on one side and our bad deeds on the other. And for us, the competition is no contest. Our good deeds are obviously heavier, right? Clearly, my righteous acts outweigh my unrighteous acts. Clearly, I, who go to church, I serve in the nursery, I read my Bible, I give monthly through the auto-draft feature on the app, I'm doing okay. Yeah, maybe I look at pornography, but that's really my only sin. Sure, I get upset at my husband, but doesn't he see how much I'm doing for him and the kids when he's at work? See, the lie of sin is that we are decent people. The lie of sin is that we are decent and we are not wretched the lie of self-righteousness is that we are clothed when we are naked. The lie of the serpent is that we are hidden when we are exposed. See, we're foolish to believe that our sin's not that bad. We're foolish to believe that we can, that our good deeds are better than our bad ones. But we're also fools to believe that our deeds won't be found out. Psalm 36 puts it this way. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. We fall into sin, and then we buy into the lie that that sin now needs to be hidden. Some of our sins can go unnoticed. Some of our sins can be covered by fig leaves. But some of our sins, well, I have to keep those locked behind a door and in the dark. They can't see the light of day. These are the sins I can't explain away. These are the sins that the consequences for their discovery would be severe and devastating. These are the sins that might make me lose my job. They might wreck my marriage. They might crush my children. They might destroy my reputation. They might disappoint my parents. No one can know, we tell ourselves. My reputation is too valuable for this to ever get out. I'll lose opportunities. It'll hurt people more than it will help them for them to know. And here is the twofold lie. For one, we believe we can hide. 
We believe that the shadows of the trees will gaze us, gaze, or shield us from the gaze of others and the gaze of God. And two, we believe that the destruction our sin is already causing can be contained. It's like having a fire in the back room and all we do is shut the door. Hoping that that door will save us from the heat of the flames. So sin makes us believe that we can hide. Makes us believe that we can avoid its effects and its consequences. But the second lie that sin makes us believe, makes us believe that we're victims and not perpetrators. It leads us into blaming something outside of ourselves for our sin instead of confessing our own. Look with me now in verse 11. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Immediately when they approached, the man and the woman began deflecting the source of their problem. God probes them with questions. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree? And in the kindness of God, he questions them. He creates an opportunity for them to confess. But instead of owning their sin, what they do is they excuse themselves and then they accuse another. Adam here, the woman gave me the fruit. This woman who he has just wrote a love, love song for, now he's saying she's to blame. But even more so, it looks as though he might be placing the blame squarely on her, her shoulders. But look again. Have you eaten of the tree? The man says, the woman you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit and I ate. He blames God. The audacity the woman you gave me, you gave me the woman, the woman gave me the fruit. It's as if Adam is saying, I'm an innocent bystander in all of this. It's your fault, God, and it's the woman's fault. It's not mine. And then Eve does the same thing. Well, it's the serpent's fault. He deceived me. Sin makes us fools. We're foolish because we believe that redirecting the blame will get us off the hook. And our culture has bought into this lie wholeheartedly. The philosopher, Bill Watterson, puts it this way. I've got a graphic to help us see this. Nothing I do is my fault. My family is dysfunctional and my parents won't empower me. Consequently, I'm not self-actualized. My behavior is addictive functioning in a disease process of toxic codependency. I need holistic healing and wellness before I'll accept any responsibility for my actions. One of us needs to stick his head in a bucket of ice water. I love the culture of victimhood. How much our culture loves victimhood. And this is not a denial of real victims of travesty and injustice. The Bible speaks often and strongly that God cares for the downtrodden and the oppressed. But how often do we claim victimhood when the juice of our sin dribbles down our chins? Tim Chester, in his book, You Can Change, he identifies five things that we blame other than ourselves. One, we blame people. We blame people for our sin. They provoked me. They hurt me. They started it. If they had just helped, 
if they had just been there, if they had just loved me better, if they had just been more patient, if they had been more kind. We blame people for our sin. We blame our context. I've just got a lot going on at work. Things at home have been hard. I don't get paid enough. I don't have as much opportunities as the next guy. We blame our context. We blame our upbringing. I take after my dad. He too was a worry wart. I take after my mom. She too was a strong, independent woman. We blame our personal history. If you'd been through what I've had to been through, you'd be fearful too. We blame our biology. It's just the way that I am. I'm an anxious person and I can't do anything about it. We refuse to take responsibility for what we've done. It's not my fault. It's something outside of me that made me like this. And how often do you and I place the guilt of our sin on the back of our spouse, on the back of our children, on the back of our parents, on the back of your boss or your employees, on the back of your paycheck, on the back of the other driver, on the back of the ottoman that you stubbed your toe on, on the back of the computer that is malfunctioning, on the back of the government that won't do enough or does too much. We blame our sin on anything else but us. And yet, when we follow the logic of each of these accusations that we make, when we follow their trail, where do we end up? We end up at the doorstep of God. We, like Adam, yes, I ate, but Eve gave it to me. But you know what? You gave me Eve. All of these things, we blame God. God, you made me like this. God, you put me in this circumstance. God, you allowed this to happen. And notice in this passage that the serpent doesn't open his mouth once. And yet you can hear his lies issuing from the mouth of both the man and the woman. If the hiding hasn't told us the extent of their problem, what comes out of their mouths makes it clear. And we know this principle that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what is it that's in the hearts of the man and the woman? Well, I think the Psalms and Paul help us identify this. Psalm 36.3, this is just the next section of the verse we read earlier. Talking about the wicked man. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. Romans 3.13, their throat is an open grave and they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. See, what sin has brought, it has brought the fact that the lies of the serpent are no longer reserved for the serpent. Adam and Eve have become like him. We too, having been infected by that same poison, have become like our father. So much so that the venom of asps comes from our own lips. We're not victims. We've bought in hook, line, and sinker to the lies of the serpent. So much so that our throats are like open graves. You can smell the stench of death coming off of our lips. John makes this, or Jesus makes this accusation in John chapter 8 of the religious elite in his day. You are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. 
See, even though Adam and Eve say true things, we're really adept at sin, right? We can even say true things but mean something else. Even though Adam and Eve, every word they say is true, the accusations are quite clear. This is not my fault. This is someone else's. And in this way, because Adam and Eve follow up their sin with more sin, we see the compounding nature of sin. Sin makes us fools to believe that we can hide. Sin makes us fools to believe that blame can be shifted. But sin also makes us fools to believe that our predicament can be improved by more sin. While we were living in Kentucky, we went to get ice cream with some friends. Yes, I love ice cream. And they were offering a seasonal flavor called Mexican chocolate. It was a rich chocolate flavor that had a bit of a kick at the end. And so I sampled it. I thought, man, that's good. It's a satisfying spice. And so in my infinite wisdom, I said, I'll have a medium milkshake. First couple of sips were great, slight, satisfying spiciness, but then the more I drank, the spicier it got. And you know I went, where I went to relief? Back to the milkshake. It covered that spice for just a moment, but then it got worse and worse and worse. It's this vicious cycle of sipping to get relief, only for the heat to come back greater. And this is what happens with sin. Adam eats the fruit, and initially the taste is sweet, but then he hears God moving in the garden and the bitterness comes. But then, opportunistically, another fruit presents itself. This one looks just as tasty, but it says hide on it. So Adam takes a bite. The bitterness is covered by sweet for a moment, but then he hears God's voice and the bitterness returns. But yet another fruit presents itself. This one says blame, and Adam takes a bite. See, we feel the effects of our sin. We taste the bitterness. But instead of abandoning it, we find relief in other sins. We minimize our sin. We maximize our self-righteousness. We hide. We blame. And what we find is not lasting relief. It might satisfy us for the moment, but the aftertaste becomes more bitter. Or worse, we become used to it. We begin We've, we've been eating the fruit for so long that it no longer revolts us. It doesn't taste bitter. It's familiar. We grow comfortable as our conscience is seared and we no longer register the dangerous effects of our sin. We're happy to keep eating the fruit. But praise be to God. There is an antidote to the poison we have ingested. And we see it even here in this text. The irony of the narrative is that Adam and Eve are not running to shelter, but they are running into exposure. But what prompts them to run? Look back in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. This always has struck me as an odd phrase. For one, we believe God is spirit. He has no body. So what does it mean that God is walking? And secondly, God is already aware of the situation He's not surprised by their rebellion, so why does he choose to make his presence known before he addresses them? And I believe this points to the evidence of the grace and mercy of God even here. Because we're told in the New Testament that the day of God's judgment for sin is coming like a thief in the night. God will be quick to judge sin. But God would have been just as just to crush the man and the woman on the spot. No preamble, no explanation, no announcement of his coming, just a word executing wrath. 
But instead of rushing in like a wrathful king coming to lower the blade on the necks of his disloyal subjects, God approaches conspicuously like a loving father. As a side note, let this be instructive to us. Whether it be with a friend or a child that's in the wrong, let us not fly in with accusations, even if the situation is clear, even if the sin is obvious. But let us draw out with questions, asking good questions to bring people to a point of realization and understanding. This is what God does. Where are you? He asks. Adam's not hidden from God. God needs no input from Adam to discern his location, to assess the situation, to know the details of what's happened. God's not a detective trying to discern motive, means, and opportunity. Who told you that you were naked, he asks. Have you eaten of the tree that I told you not to eat? These are not accusations. These are invitations. Don't miss this, friends. Of all the things God could have said, what have you done? Didn't I give you enough? How could you? He chooses three words. Where are you? And this is where the antidote starts. The answer to this question is fundamental to the Christian life. The antidote starts in realizing where we are. In realizing that our sin has taken us far from God. You can imagine that when God spoke these words to Adam and Eve, they sounded like a faint, distant echo. And this first question, where are you? It's an invitation to confess status. To confess we are far from God. W. Griffith Thomas puts it this way. God's question to Adam still sounds in the ear of every sinner. Where are you? It is a call of divine justice which cannot overlook sin. It is a call of divine sorrow which grieves over the sinner. It is a call of divine love which offers redemption from sin. To each and every one of us, the call is reiterated. Where are you? God is inviting Adam to confess his sin in these questions. God is showing where the cure starts. Then God invites Adam with another question. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And this is part number two of the antidote. The question is an invitation to confess your sins. Adam need only respond with yes. But instead, he bites the fruit that says blame, and he accuses God, and he accuses his wife. But even though Adam misses the point and plunges himself further into sin, the pattern is established. Sinners run from God, but God runs to sinners and calls them out. And this is what enables our confession. It paves the way for us to recognize our guiltiness and not to shift the blame. And while sin is sweet, but then it turns to bitter, bitter confession is bitter that turns to sweet. The remedy of God is bitter at first taste, not because the things of God are bitter, but because it forces us to look upon our sin, to taste it for what it is. Confession is like regurgitation. Nothing ever tastes good the second time around. It forces us to stare our problem in the face. It allows us to taste the true nature of our sin, and it gives us a taste for the fruits of the way of life. It forces us to recognize with the effects of our infidelity, our anger, or our greed. 
The Lord's intentions for you are that you would hate your sin and true confession to both God and others that is based on godly sorrow leads to hatred of sin. But even, even tasting our sins in confession, even tasting our tarnished relationships, our tattered reputations, or the visible fruit of our crimes, it does not paint the whole picture. The way we get a full taste of our sin is when we look to the cross. Hear the words of smitten, stricken, and afflicted. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed, see who bears the awful load, tis the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. It is here at the cross where we find the true antidote for sin. Because it is here at the cross where we find another Adam, a second Adam, a better Adam. An Adam who, when he was approached by the same slithering serpent and was presented with the fruit, did not succumb, did not take a bite. But when the accusation was laid against him, he responded differently than the first Adam. R.C. Sproul Jr. puts it this way, Adam said, don't blame me, blame my wife. Jesus comes and says, don't blame my wife, blame me. And friends, when we confess our sin, when we taste the bitterness of it, you know what it does? It enables us to partake of Christ. That's the image that we'll see in a moment when we take communion. That we confess our sins, but then we can take hold of Christ to enjoy him, to delight in obedience to him, to taste and see that he is good. So don't be a fool. Don't believe the lies of sin. Don't hide it. Don't minimize it. Don't excuse it away. Don't accuse another. Don't blame anyone or anything else for your sin. Recognize your sin. Own it for what it is and confess it to God. For we are all in Adam, dead in our trespasses and sin, having the same nature as Adam and Eve. But it's through Christ that we are made alive. Ephesians 2.13 puts it so, so well. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, you who were taken away because of your sin, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Friends, let sin be bitter and Christ be sweet. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. That it points out the destruction that our sin causes. It points out the source of the disease that is not outside of us, but it is inside of us. Father, let us not claim victimhood when we are perpetrators. But let us own our sin And when you come running, let us not run away, but let us go to you when you call. When you call us to repent, to turn from our sins, and to take hold of your son, let us do so willingly. And let us also do that daily. Forsaking sin, confessing it, and clinging to Christ. Father, we pray yet again, let sin be bitter and Christ be sweet. Amen.